this works. Okay, so uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, the Pfeiffer version. I don't even know who directed that one. But there was like a huge thing around the uh, mid-90s where there was like a, a swell in Shakespearean adaptations where I feel like a lot of actors were, they were, they're basically like very good plays for ensemble casts. So you could take a lot of actors and have them munch scenery together. So the fact that we don't really know about the casting of Midsummer is just uh, a poor indication of the performances. Did you want to add something? Yeah, just about the questions. Who ends up in the end? Uh, Demetrius. Demetrius ends up in the end. Why is there a... Well, that's an amazing question. I do not have the answer right now. I think that's, it's, it's very much in delving. In my regards, like Midsummer Night's Dream ends with um, Bottom's explanation of like, and then we will put on Bottom's play. And there's like an opening at the end of that soliloquy where he explains that the play could, it is but a dream. The Midsummer Night's Dream can be seen as uh, an encapsulating bubble. So oddly enough, I didn't really pay attention to um, coherent resolution within, because since it ends by saying, and there's, there's very much a, a tradition following that type of theater of saying, theater is but a dream. It is something illusionary that comes in during uh, like a specific time. And, and that has been also extrapolated a lot in cinema. If you've heard about this theory of the, the idea of the flickering of the image that is less and less present in contemporary cinema, but the 24 image second flickering on a cinema screen resonates uh, with uh, practices of hypnotism. So sitting in a theater, uh, a movie theater, in the dark and having this, this bubble that, that goes beyond your conscious mind is also something that has been said of the theater. So th that conclusion to Midsummer Night's Dream is very much an understanding of this. We, we are in a space that is but a dream and we're going to leave and nothing will matter afterwards. Uh, that was recuperated also by, by uh, Bertolt Brecht in, um, uh, I don't know what his form of theater was, but he actually was opposed to that by saying that if we're going to the theater and we're going to see a show, we have to be changed afterwards. So he would do everything to, to like disrupt the fact that he's in a spectacle to make sure that, and in the end it was a, Brecht was very much a um, Marxist. So he was aiming the theater at a worker's revolt. So there are like these two types of understandings of theater. You're in, this is a story. And then you leave and you exit the story and you, you go back to your life. That's a theory that's also like encapsulated with the idea of catharsis. You go to theater to live emotions by procreation. You see these things, you get engaged, you laugh, you cry, you're angry. You spend those emotions. Catharsis is that feeling of leaving a, a spectacle and not being angry at your job anymore. It's, okay, well, I'm going to get angry at this person. And I'm going to go home, sleep. Tomorrow morning, my boss is going to shit on me. I won't be angry at him because all those emotions have been spent there. That is also connected with what Brecht was saying. You need to keep those emotions because you need to be angry at your boss because you want to kill him and seize the means of, of production. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a very short history of theater. But I think it's a really interesting question because in that play, you have both. You have like a, a coherent understanding of the dream and afterwards you have a character saying, ah, it's fine, it's fine. But everything is pretty much in suspense because you can admit that it is a dream only because a character has told you or allowed you to feel that way. But if you don't want it, 
trust the character because you're allowed to, well, you can continue asking those types of questions that, as I said, I don't have the answer, but I'm sure it's written in the text somewhere. It's just you really have to dive. You looked? Okay. Wow. Ah. Well, there's a lot. Like I was saying in the last class, there's a lot of literature about Shakespeare. And uh, yeah, I could start off with this. I think the comedies are harder to analyze than the tragedies. In, in, in regards of watching how the comedies function and how the characters interact and what are they actually saying or meaning or what are their place, I feel like the comedies are a little slippier than the tragedies, where the tragedies is basically like you, okay, sorry, there's a, a, a color and design pattern right here. Your Kropel gag shirt and the, the button right there. Sorry, I'm really sorry. As I said, I, I need to, to combine my stuff. It's nothing you did. It's just like, ah! Uh, the comedies are harder because the comedies end up in, they, they culminate with, with a marriage, but they don't culminate in, they don't necessarily culminate in the acts of the entire play. So you don't, like Midsummer is a good example of, there's no place in that play to understand a, a plot. Everything is moving around, parts are floating, parts are interacting, but in the end, what's the story? Is basically just that person then said that to that person, that person took that. And while trying to prepare this class, I realized that having, and having like this, this valse kind of feeling in a lot of the comedies make them harder to pinpoint. And that's where like this class is really going to be different from the tragedies because they're more about feeling, feelings, feeling, and the insulation of a mood more than this character did this, that means this, and we're saying this. It's, it's there, but it's less there. Yes? Yes, the Julie Taymor version? Uh, 1960s? Nope, not the Julie Taymor version. <laughs> mm. um, I, yeah, it was like an hour 15 on YouTube, so I was like, hey, that's Oof. nice. <laughs> it is a short play. Yep. It still made sense, but then like at first you have the feeling that the theme is like vengeance and stuff, but then he forgives them at the end. Yeah. It's it's one of my like since we're speaking of deep dives, Tempest is my favorite play to look. Like there are so many but well, it is. I, it, it is. And there's like this flying little spirit thing called Ariel. Ariel, yeah. Everything in the 1960s version feels like someone has a big fever and is just imagining a whole bunch of stuff happening everywhere. You're not far from every Shakespearean comedy in general. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> That's strange. There were special effects in the 20s. Oh, yeah, okay. Just, just in case. It is, it is, and that's why you have to present Shakespeare in two classes because I can't do Lear and all these very important things and you know ripping kingdoms apart and then going and the fairies, you know, like <laughs> because they're they are super weird and that's one of the things that when the the connotations that we have to Shakespeare are is inclined. I don't know if this is shared in every for everyone's sake, but when you think Shakespeare, I think the mind goes towards the the canonical tragedies. But he still wrote really weird, you're right, weird comedies. <laughs> they really are so weird. Midsummer is even weirder, I believe. Like Tempest kind of has like a character. Prospero in the middle is the, yeah. is the linchpin, but much ado is uh, Midsummer. Just, yeah, sorry. Uh, I was just saying, version by George Stafford, something like this. But I was wondering, like, when did George Stafford start writing stories? Yeah. Uh, what? So, I mean, Shakespeare, like, describes how Denmark being a Caliban is half human. Yes, he is born of a, a demon sprite and of a woman. Uh, there are complicated readings around that character. But don't they just say that he's, like, a native on the island? He, he comes from the island because the island was uh, originally the dominion of the uh, witch that had control over him. So he is native of there. We will go to the complicated ring around Caliban. It's the one I'm very much, uh, let's see how this goes. Yes? Uh, what's the Merchant of Venice? The Pacino version? Yes. Nice. Portia and Bessiano uh, <laughs> and uh, Antonio. Antonio yeah. uh, all of these guys, uh, I, I saw that I was meant to root for them, but I found them to be uh, a bunch of jerks. They exploited <laughs> and destroyed and broke Shylock in every way they could. <laughs> and at the end, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, you, you see, I, I don't think it was in the play, but you Mm -hmm. his, half his estate has gone to the state. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, the, the door is closing, and he just yeah, yeah. So I, I was, I was curious why it wasn't a comedy, but I read on it and I saw that it's almost like the subplot of. There's a wedding in the end. The story of Pilot. Well, let's do this. Let's convolute a love story around that, and it evolved and kind of took over. Mm -hmm. Well, no one dies, so it's not a tragedy. Uh, no, no, but it's, it's that simple. It's that standard. Like, uh, um, here, uh, let me. Ye! Yeah. <laughs> ah, he's back. They, uh, no, whoa, shh, whoa, okay, okay, I got plenty of stuff. Yeah, there you go. I'll, I'll let this. It, it's, it is a comedy, but uh, like last week, when I said the Merchant Venice, I, I don't know if it was here, like someone went like, whoa, Merchant is a comedy. And it's not a comedy, it's super hard. It's a really, really hard play. And it's a very historically complex play, but I'm going to be throwing it back at you because I want to have your opinion on this. It's, 
when we'll do the play, because I want, like, since not everyone has uh, watched it, I'm still going to be doing the, the synopsis reading. One of the things that I wanted to add, because it, it, might, um, it might have passed on as strange when I did that during last class, I need to read the synopsis as it was written, because if I try to recap something, I'm going to go all over the place and end up going like, oh, and then, and then there's that thing, and then the boat, and the boat is not really important, but then, and then yeah, and then he pulls out. But then, so I really need, if I want to teach this class correctly, I need to go to something that has been verified and clear because I cannot anecdotally explain a play and you understanding it. I will just go like, eh. it's really bad. I, as teacher, it's, it's teacher bad. So we'll, we'll come back to that because it is, oof. yes. It is the pound of flesh. It's more based on revenge because of the way he was treated and the Jews were treated. That's how I saw it. Yeah. But is that supposed to be like, is that a common thing in Tamil? Like revenge? Like the quote that I have here is the, the fact that comedies function in three parts. The first part is an absurd, unpleasant, or irrational situation that is the setup. The second part is the confused identity or personal complications. And the third part is which, in, in which the plot gives a shake and twists everything and everything comes out right in the end. Which is complicated when we're thinking of Merchant of Venice because like, not everything is right in the end for that character. So that's why I always resume to like, the, the canonical types. Tragedy is death in the end. Comedy is wedding in the end. We have this very modern idea of comedy is Will Ferrell jumping off a cliff. Like, th that is comedy. Or uh, the, 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 I'm in Marx, so like, um, uh, comedy is, uh, comedy is drama plus time, I think, or something of the sort. Or even there, um, there's a, I think it's a Marxist reading where they say that tragedies in life, uh, um, major disruptive ev events in life happen first as tragedy, then as farce. So like comedy is the second time something bad happens and you're like, oh, it had to happen a second time. Like the, 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 the um, disruptive or complicated events in our lives can be seen as something that, that will destroy us, but if they happen a second time, well, we end up laughing at them. So there are a lot of definitions of comedy here. I'm going back to a Shakespearean comedy. People die, most, most people die. Sometimes everyone dies. Shakespearean comedy is people are uh, married. Yes, I'm gonna do bing, bing, bing. Mm -hmm. Could it be possible that when the class starts, it, that it might be available on Moodle, so we can maybe follow as we go along? No problem. This is the last time I'll be doing this. Okay. Oh, no, well, no, probably not. Yeah. No, no, but I'm, yeah, there are a couple of weeks left. I, I don't know if I'm going to be doing, yeah, I'm probably going, they're, they're not going to be as thorough, yeah. I feel. But yeah, I could, I could uh, well, obviously I can. Yeah, for sure. Copy, paste, yeah. Right. No, no, I'm kidding, come on. <laughs> I'm getting back to my normal self now. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there. So yes, now something's... Are you asking me 
vacuum. Vacuum. There you go. Do do. The vacuum strikes back. Oh, yeah, for before. sure. Mm -hmm. and I was wondering, do you think that was done to try to appeal to like a broader audience, to like make them come see something that they thought would be funny, but actually turned out something that's much deeper? Would be like an easier sell? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, they might be the. Well, I, I I can say that they might be the reason why we're still studying Shakespeare. I can't really say that that was the intent. Uh, most of the plays that that stay on from that period kind of have that immensity to, to them. Uh, there's also, as I was explaining in, in the first class, the idea of having a development. So if you don't, if you don't have that um, density, there might not be those transformations. If you're staying in, in lightness during the entire play, or if you're staying in in superficia superficiality in the heroic age, like Beowulf. Beowulf isn't very serious in the end. Maybe by having that seriousness within the play is the thing that allows the transformation. Well, it's all about the impact, right? I think that, I guess, it's much more yeah. serious and real. It needs more of an impact on you than something that's Maybe. Like maybe that's, that's his, well, this is where I find, like, I can't be absolutely sure on one side, is because there are serious themes to his comedies, but sometimes his comedies are, are very light. So it doesn't have to have that, that poignancy to it. Like, I don't believe Midsummer really has something dense in the middle. And like, if, I, if I'm thinking of Much Ado, like, obviously, Merchant of Venice has it. Obviously, um, I don't think Taming of the Shrew either has like a really, I'm, I'm, I'm evading the term tragic, but something um, in French we would say a failure fatale, like a, a, a rip in it. There is no real rip in, in Taming of the Shrew either. So yeah, so that's, a, that's an interesting question. That's a, I, I don't have the, the complete answer to that one. But the fact that there is constant development, or every play has a development in characters. Characters exit transformed, in my regards, is one of the reasons why we're still studying Shakespeare right now. Yes? I love the Knight's Tale. A Knight's Tale? Yeah. Okay, that, that's not a Shakespeare play. Really? A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger and Geoffrey Chaucer as a character is really? Yeah, but it was written that like the, the original like Shakespeare was a comedy and this one was written like tragic comedy. But I I thought it was more a tragedy than a yeah. tragedy. Well there's Queens We Will Rock You in it. So am I. 
because there are two things here only. I did not know. Because there is, like, in the, um, who plays him? The, um, the guy who played Vision, what the hell is his name again? P uh, Paul Bettany, plays Jeffrey Chaucer in A Knight's Tale. So he plays a famous Anglo-Saxon writer. I don't want to, you know, like really, I, I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, no problem, no problem. Yeah, if we can find that out. Yeah. <laughs> I watched Terminator 2. <laughs> somewhere, it's there somewhere. I'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oh yeah. And when it is released, then the comedy happens. The person laughs because there's a, a release of tension. Yeah. So that, does that transpire into like Shakespeare's comedies in a way? Because yeah. Because the tension into yeah. characters, there's tragedy, and then and yeah, then it kind of makes it right because. Well, that's the thing. Yes. Yes, but you know, correct or um happy conclusions change over time. So like, they would work, if we're, if we're talking about Much Ado, if we're talking about Midsummer, like, um, as you may have it, like, yes, those work, but then I always have to include Merchant, and I always have to include Tempest also, and mm, they become very complicated. So like, you're absolutely right, except for like these marginal examples yeah. where we have no idea of the resolution of Tempest. Really, we have no idea. It ends right before it ends. Mm -hmm. So where is that resolution? We know Prospero goes back to Milan, but is, what, what space is he going to be taking? We have no idea of this. We know there's the wedding of Rosalind, but how is, like the wedding isn't, isn't even present in the play. So it is, I think you're absolutely right, but there are the problematic side yeah. things. Also, I realized that uh, we were speaking with Succession last week. Uh, I was wrong. Cordelia is is um, yeah. Connor. The the, the, the one that doesn't really want to be uh, yeah. in the succession. Mm -hmm. yeah. It just I I've not like I, I was early on like it, it's during the episode where they go in therapy mm -hmm. that it just hit me like I was just excluding that character as being out of story because he's not he's always treated as outside of the family. He's not of the of the main three. And I was looking in the main three, going like, which one? Which one's going to turn out? And then completely, like, like they do in the show, just <laughs> disregarding that guy during the entire thing, going like, no, 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 he doesn't count. And going, oh, wait, he is. He does not implicate himself in this whole thing. So that's what I wanted to, like, I have to come back on this one. Uh, all right. Uh, this was nice. This allowed me to, to settle in. One of the things that I did not, this is still working, cool. Last week, I was speaking of my, my class with a friend of mine, and I was uh, explaining to him, like, in tragedies, how uh, a lot of the tragedies are representation of, of uh, laws that we know. And then we were like, these are very old friends. Like, it, it, it ended up just me being kind of tipsy and going, oh, yeah, and this play is, is this law, and this play is this law. And my friend is going, oh, wow, your class looks really interested. And me going, ah, I didn't teach that part. 
So he went, I think you need to go back on that one because it was just like me freestyling something. Freestyling something. And in the end, he, uh, like you might not find this interesting, but he found it interesting. If this is not interesting, it's because I'm not tipsy. Like, <laughs> ergo, let's do like that. But I was thinking like maybe an introduction to like the laws and dictums that we might know or not know. And I even, while doing a research on this, added a couple that you could include in other classes. So this might be like extra credit someplace else. I don't know. So like the ideas of laws, and I'm not talking about jurisdiction or legalese. I'm talking about these, these types of uh, laws that come from observation. Like the, um, everyone, I, I obviously think that everyone knows about Murphy's Law. Uh, Murphy's Law has been taken in plenty of contexts. Like there is the, the Irish traditional Murphy's Law that says that everything that can go wrong will go wrong which is a law that stipulates these types of things. It can be transmuted in, if you're buttering a toast and you drop it, it will obviously fall on the buttered surface. Obviously, that's, that's Murphy's Law in a, in a it is, yeah. Like, and then like the, there was the whole uh, meme thing where if you put that buttered toast on the back of a cat and you throw the cat, what happens? And then you have the potential to infinite energy. <laughs> Uh, so there's Murphy's Law. Um, there's the one about the Nazis online, which I think is called Murphy also. Is it? Godwin. Godwin, there you go. Godwin's point, where uh, eventually if you argue with someone online, you will get to the point where someone compares the other to a Nazi. That's Godwin's point. So these are like observational laws that don't have universalism, but kind of are good to have in your back pocket when you're trying to understand human nature. And while I'm saying this, you can read the underlining of saying, having a good knowledge of Shakespeare is also something really good to have in your back pocket when you're confronting humanity. Because you're like, oh, this is obviously a Iago. This is obviously this type of character. And you might be able to, to navigate humanity in a better way. So quickly with the laws, I was thinking of uh, Ancton's dictum, which you probably know power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I did not close a parenthesis on this one. Um, this one is also added on with the uh, Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility, obviously. Yes. Or Ben Parker, because he says it first. Yes. It is? <laughs> it's an adaptation of what? Yeah. There is a lot of usage of Shakespeare, like saying something is Shakespearean, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's an adaptation of a Shakespearean text. Like some people will say, uh, um, what, what current event is Shakespearean in scope? Well, like everything that has intrigue or treason or thing, if, if it gets to a certain level, people will just drop that adjective to it. Like if someone wakes up looking like a bug, people will say, ha, ah, that's Kafkaesque. That doesn't, you know, it's, it, they might be shorthands to certain things. We'll check that out. Brandolini's Law, which is the amount of uh, energy needed to refute bullshit is uh, an order of magnitude bigger than to produce it. This is actually very important, but when I was thinking, like Brandolini was one of the examples when I was thinking of Othello of why Othello, why does Othello just completely embark in Iago's scheme is the idea that through Brandolini's law, we understand that 
a, a unit of information will take more energy to disrepute, uh, to, uh, sorry, what did they say? To refute than to accept or acknowledge. So, and this is actually uh, very present in our current climate where people will read stuff online and say, wow, I've read it online. This must be the truth. Sorry, this, this has no, it, purely coincidental. Um, but Brandolini's law is, is the, uh, the force of effect that puts Othello in jeopardy because he, he needs to um, spend more energy in refuting what Iago says. He ends up adopting it and therefore tragedy. So Brandolini's law. The uh, Parkinson's law is work expands to fill the time available for its completion. You can add this to any uh, finals that you will be doing during your semester. If you have three days to write a final, you will take three days. If you have three hours, you will take three hours. This is an actual law called Parkinson's law. This one was for, ah, uh, oh, no, I forgot to, ah, oh, crap, sorry. I, I had the book on my desk, but I completely forgot to pick it up. Um, the Sapir-Whorf uh, hypothesis, which I've already spoken about, where uh, language is the um, language is the tool that with which we construct our reality. So if you're lacking words to describe the reality, the reality becomes complicated and therefore erased or absent of your mind understanding. I, I wanted to bring the uh, Robert McLaughlin book Landscape to read at least one entry where he uses a word that we no longer use at all to describe uh, the pool of water, of uh, rainwater that is uh, amassed at the root of a certain tree. There is a word for that. And Robert McFarlane did an entire research through uh, England, Scotland, and uh, Ireland to get those precise words that have disappeared of our, uh, in our using. This Sepia-Whorf hypothesis brings that idea. The idea that I've read has been falsified of um, like uh, Inu, the Inu um, people have 17 or 27 or 108 words for snow, which is not, I've heard people saying that it's not true at all. It's, it's not, there you go. Well, that uh, example was used to explain Sepia-Whorf by saying, if there are uh, um, a plurality of words to describe snow, there is a plural, plural, plural eh, there you go. There is a plurality of ways of understanding the reality of snow. So even though the example of snow is not, uh, doesn't work, has been disproved, the uh, Sepia-Whorf hypothesis still stays because it's unprovable, basically. It's just a way of seeing reality. Occam's razor becomes very important, especially when we're looking at uh, Shakespearean characters. The Occam Razor says that when two or more explanations are offered for a phenomenon, the simplest is the preferred one. This will be the technique that uh, Sherlock Holmes uses and applies constantly by saying you can write an entire story, to un a convoluted story to understand a crime, but if it's, you know, if it's the cat, it's the cat. It's just the simplest and the one that doesn't uh, force you to go around and find niche explanations. So once again, in our online lives, Occam's razor should be very much used. Like, what is it with Bill Gates and the vaccine stuff? The Streisand effect, which is really funny, but it's also very present in Shakespeare, is uh, this was uh, actually named for Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand in the beginning of the 90s or uh, end of the 90s or beginning of the 2000s tried to have the um, picture of her mansion removed from the internet 
And when, that, when those efforts were seen, people just started saying, hey, look at how Barbara Streisand is trying to hide this. And then everyone went, why is she trying to hide this? I don't know, but it's here. And that's basically the Streisand effect is that if you, if you feel that someone's trying to hide something, it'll just give it more importance in the public sphere. I'm adding this as a segue to say that I've thought about, like I've added to the uh, Moodle several of the writings for before break. For um, maybe Truth is Stranger Than Fiction, I'm adding uh, Harrison Bergeron by uh, Kurt Vonnegut as a, as a read. I'm also going to be adding uh, The Lottery by uh, Shirley Jackson for the final. And it is a long one, but it's one that is very much in tune with the Streisand effect. For the uh, graphic novel one, I'm adding Mouse. So if you want to read Mouse, well, you have your opportunity here. I'm going to find a PDF version that you can read. But Mouse in the last week or so, at least a week or 10 days, have, has been a very apt description of the Streisand effect, where people have said, we're going to take this book out of one school in Tennessee and how the... Um, like two or three days later, the book became uh, Amazon bestseller, first and fourth position. So like if you're trying to hide something, people come back to it. Yes? Why did they want to take it out? Uh, because, whoa, do you want the long version or the short version? Okay. Uh, I, like, I like the long version the most because it, it's, a, it's a course in intellectual self-defense. That's very important. And that I feel is going to happen in Quebec or in Canada, but is very much happening, and this will be super reflective of my politics. So I, I want to disclaim this one real good. I'm, this is me not as a teacher, this is me as a human being. This is how I feel about it. Basically what happened in the United States is that a aide to a senator, I don't know the name of that guy, I don't, it doesn't come up like automatically. Basically what he did is that he tried a, a platform reform to get his senator elected by saying what you need to do is you need to go to um, press conferences and city councils and stuff and say, uh, oh, they're, te they're teaching critical race theory. That's what they're doing to our kids. They're teaching them critical race theory. No, just in general. This happened like two or three years ago. And then what, hap uh, what happened is that by creating this straw man of critical race theory, critical race is something in between history and sociology. And did not exist. I need to add, prelude this. He just pulled that out as, an, as a communications aid, saying, if you create this monster, people will go, oh, no, we need to go against this. But the critical race theory is still looming in the United States, where people don't want teachers to teach history as it happened or as we are in our capacity to read it in our modern times. So basically, they don't want people to teach slavery as something bad. Like, we cannot be critical race theory is saying slavery is bad. Like, that's one of the points of saying they should not be teaching that. They should be teaching slavery happened. It helped some people. It, it, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's very complicated. Be well, that's where Mouse comes in, is that everything that has a critical... Um, perspective or everything that is looking at history as in maybe that was bad is something that we need to it stems out of the idea exactly yeah, let's not talk about the but this stems out of the um of 
a, a journalistic principle that is called the two-sided principle, where if you're uh, proposing an argument, you should propose the counter-argument. But this has taken a, a strange turn in the United States where if you're going to teach that the earth is round, you also have to teach that the earth is flat. Which is not counter-arguing. Not, that's not how it works. It's if you're going to teach evolution, you need to teach creationism. Those are the ambiguities present in the US, in the current US uh, uh, pol political thing. And Mouse is one of those things. Mouse is just another of the examples where they ramp up public problematics by saying, well, look at what it's saying. It's saying that like, all the Nazis were bad. And then you're like, ah, oh, shit, we're there again. Oh, exactly. That's, that's the, it's the logic behind it. And I'd like to say that it's ridiculous, but it's not. It's super dangerous. And right now, it's to the point where there are a lot of um, uh, leftist ideology people, which is, you know, that's their place, that's fine, that are uh, running for school board. So the thing with uh, the, uh, the, sorry, not leftist, right. <laughs> Sorry, I completely forgot. Yes, the leftists aren't doing anything for the schools except like defending freedom of speech, but the right is actually coordinating spots in school boards by saying, well, now you need to teach, uh, like there, there will be more and more laws within that are introduced by saying, well, if you're going to teach evolution, you need to teach creation, creationism and stuff. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's, that's a huge problem. We're not, this is not our climate, yeah. but it's close enough. And I feel like, once again, this is me, completely me. <laughs> but I feel like the whole thing around woke was like a trial for that. Where in Quebec politics, where they, like, I think, I, I very much, I'm being recorded right now. <laughs> <laughs> I very much suspect that someone in a political party looked at the critical race theory thing and went, hey, Francois, try, try woke, see how that works. And then he started going like, oh, it's all the woke's folks, uh, the woke's faults. <laughs> and it became like people, there, there was a, a lionizing, a de uh, not a lionizing, there was a demonizing of that term in a political strategy, strategy because basically the word only says that there's an understanding of inequalities. Mm -hmm. It's not something that should be demonized. But I felt like when Woke started appearing and when he was using it, weaponizing it and using it against other parties, like, ah, that's, that's them just trying to take a, a, a faction of our country and saying, oh, wait, it's the kids or the Woke's fault. And it's just, it becomes very, I, I'm, I understand that this will, there are reactions to this. It's my opinion. <laughs> but let's go real quick. Yes. Yeah, well, when they're there, I'm uh, very much so. There are, I, I added some that I was like, this is basic knowledge that's just good for you. Like Streisand's law is good. Okay. You need to understand that when you're trying to hide something. To the there are, and they will be uh, assigned to the plays. Like when I get to Merchant of Venice, I'll say, this, this is this law. These ones are just like, well, they're not just fluff, but they're f free information <laughs> that wants to flow. Yes, did, did you have a... That's the thing. And it's actually, historically, culture wars in the United States are very American. It's part of the American 
You're right. So, like, it's just enough taking something up. In, in the 80s, there was metal. There was, like, you know, doing the horns at 616. Mm -hmm. um, there's always something, and that's how it's used to mobilize people to get people to vote. Yeah. Matt, uh, it was, it was a video game's fault for Columbine. It was, there's always, yeah, there was um, uh, Dungeons and Dragons was bringing our kids to Satanism. It was, but it's, it's ridiculous, but like Tom Hanks' career started off on that point, so. But you're, you're absolutely right. They were what? Oh, really? Because there was like there was the the strides in effect with Nancy Reagan. I, yeah, if, he, he's a he's a the son is like a leftist uh, talking head. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Which is always, but uh, like two or three weeks ago there was um um, uh, slut shaming towards one of the uh, uh, I think, this is me like it's super hazy but they. There was a slut shaming towards a, a Democrat, and people just went like, "Oh yeah, everything's fine with what Nancy Reagan was doing on the Paramount lot." And then the Streisand effect came into effect, where people were like finding very uh, explicit sexual things that Nancy Reagan was doing while she was married, and everyone just immediately went, "Oh wait, we're not like we we wanted to speak of how the 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 left is." Uh, sexually active, but we didn't want to, oh, 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 sorry, and then that completely happened. But there are like, you're right, for the culture wars, it's, it's very. It's, it even, like, it's, it's throughout American yeah. history. Like, there's so many different stories, like, um, I can't think of one, but the American Revolution. And even like, yeah. it specific characters, like the creating of a myth of a character, like Paul Revere. Yeah. But you're right, the American Revolution is. It's basically a couple of guys writing a story of like the, the man that is supposed to take care of us is not taking care of us. We need to get rid of him. That might be, that could be too, as an origin of culture wars, because it's yeah. really like English Americans versus England English. Yeah, yeah. Disparity. The, the, the patriots versus the loyalists. And yeah, it is. Historically, it, it's, yeah, it's always been there. I just want to have a second with the previous Oh yeah, sorry. These are all online anyways. I, the, the, I put the PowerPoints okay. the day after or several days after because like <laughs> Wednesdays are really bad for me. I'm just <laughs> watching The Untamed right now. I'm going to take like six hours of The Untamed. I'll be fine. <laughs> okay, Parkinson have done. Shrizen affected. Uh, yes, well, uh, one that you might know because it's uh, very much present in the uh, Francophone culture is the la, la Loi du Talion, the Law of Talion. So the Lex Talionis is the eye for an eye. Uh, but the eye for an eye makes everyone blind. The Law of Talion is uh, also the inspiration for the title of the Patrick Sénécal novel, Les Sept Jours de Talion, where he is trying to wreak vengeance on someone, an eye for an eye. The Thermidorian reaction is uh, what we, I, I can go really quickly on this one. I, I put Parkinson's Law twice. Uh, Thermidorian reaction is um, when there is progress, like it's, it's been recapped as two steps forward, one step back or one step forward, two steps back? Yeah, one step forward, two steps back, is what we call the uh, Termidorian reaction. So if there is progress, there will also be a diminishing return afterwards. Yes? Is that a reference to the month of Thermidor in the... Exactly, French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Wow, not bad. Yeah, the revolutionary yeah. causes. Thank yeah. you. Cool. <laughs> Sorry, I'm blushing. This is nice. <laughs> like, oh. It's exactly that, because there was, there was the... the, the um, 
Bed back to go back to an empire. Yep. One step forward, two steps back. Boom. Uh, okay, so back to comedies. Let's speak of these things. I was like, oh, this is going to be smooth. How is, how, is, how is time? What is time? Whoa, time is weird. Holy moly. Okay. Uh, woof. So I've already said this, but it's present in the PowerPoint if you want to copy paste it. It's right there. The first part of comedy is an absurd, unpleasant, or irrational situation. It's a setup. The second part is a confused identity and personal complications related to this, to this confused identity. The third part is when everything kind of shakes up and comes out right in the end. This is Northrop's Fry interpretation of it. Tangle of the Shrew. Let me describe Tangle of the Shrew. This was super, super useful, by the way. Okay. Wealthy Padua merchant, but has anyone watched Taming of the Shoe? The Zeferelli version? Yeah, um, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor? Yeah, the Franco Zeferelli. Did you like it? That's good. Not at all. Yep. No, no, you're you're. <laughs> There's no two ways about that play. It's immensely sexist, and the, the, it's it's it doesn't. <laughs> no, 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 like, let's go. Let's, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's like the first, you can't, there has been a lot of discourse around Shakespeare where people have tried to argue certain aspects and nothing really holds on the sexism present in this play. Like nothing is, yeah, well, they're offering them better conditions in life. Like nothing, it's, no. The only, actually, if you want to reconnect with the play, uh, I watched uh, 10 Things I Hate About You with my daughter. Everything smooths out in that version. We're not in the age of wife as property. That's the really distinct thing is that no one owns anyone in that place. So it's like, since it's a, a um, contemporary transposition, it's going to the prom. So that kind of takes off a lot of the tension present. Okay, the wealthy Padua merchant, Batista, up there, has two daughters. One day, Lucencio, a student, comes to Padua, sees Bianca, the younger sister, and falls madly in love with her. He has heard through Batista, oh, no, he has heard, though, that Batista will not allow Bianca to be married before her older sister, Caterina, a very forceful character who has a scornful attitude to men and expresses that without restraint. That, up to that point, is super interesting. Just having an a unbridled and wild woman works. The situation regarding Bianca is very complicated, and Lucencio's entry into the equation makes things even more complicated. Two local men, Hortensio and the elderly Gremio, are pursuing Bianca, but she doesn't like either of them, so they have to resort to a range of tactics to try and further their interest. Grimio hires Lucencio, disguised as a Latin tutor, 
to woo Bianca on his behalf. Hortensio poses as a musician to try and get into the, her company. While all this is going on, Petruchio, a young friend of Hortensio from Verona, pays a visit to his friend and hears the story about the feisty Kate. He sees her as a challenge, which he decides to rise to. Batista welcomes this as he is fed up with Kate's disruptive behavior that makes family life difficult. He accepts Petruchio's offer of marriage, and although Kate opposes it, she cannot do anything about a father's right to marry his daughter off, which is very present in Shakespearean times. Petruchio arrives at the church outlandishly dressed and whisks her off to Verona as soon as the marriage is pronounced. During the journey, Kate rebels against her husband, but he begins training her to obey him. On arrival, yep, that's a big one. On arrival at his house, Petruchio mistreats her and instructs his servants to do the same. She is denied everything she wants for a civilized life, including food and sleep. She is not allowed new clothes or any luxury. That wears her resistance down. She gets drugs. Eventually, uh, her, uh, and eventually she submits and becomes an obedient wife. It is time to visit her father. Uh, it is time to visit her father where Petruchio plans to demonstrate his wife's obedience. In the meantime, Horencio has given up on Bianca and married a widow. Lucencio and Bianca haven't fallen in love, have a runoff, and are married secretly. They return now while Petruchio and Kate are visiting, and Batista, relieved that it's all turned out for the better than he thought it would, hosts a party for his daughters. They all have a good time, and as the men gather together after the meal, Petruchio challenges Lucencio and Hortensio to a competition to see which of their wives is the most obedient. Each one is to command his wife to come with him. Bianco and the, Bianca, Bianco, sorry, and the widow fails to respond, whereas Kate does, and furthermore delivers a lecture to the other wives on the duties of a wife. No two ways about it, this play is super sexist. All I said is during the 90s, they tried to shift around on that idea, mostly on, by creating Kate as a, as a bad, as the um, female equivalent of a bad boy, which works a lot better, but works when you're taking off the huge implications of patriarchy. And although, as I said, it's absolutely impossible to defend this play, and that play, like the, the Zeffirelli adaptation, is also very much complex because there was a lot in the filming that, was, uh, that made it fraught and uh, a lot of hardship, especially around the fact that it was a vehicle, as you see in the production credits. Burton co-produced it. And Burton was married with um, Elizabeth Taylor at that point, and it was a marriage that was very conflicting and very, uh, it was a, well, um, adventurous, if I could say. Very, it, it was a very um, sanguine, they were, it, they were a very troubling couple. Adding that Zeffirelli, which oddly enough, I just realized, for me, Franco Zeffirelli was always the director of, he was an opera director, but also the director of the, the most acclaimed Romeo and Juliet version. But during the past week, there's, uh, I, I started looking into the character and the character is pretty complicated. Franco Zeffirelli was uh, also politically and morally complex. So having that version, even though the text originally is super complex, having those elements also just put it off the top. As I was saying, there's no way to defend this play. The only thing that I saw is there are feminist readings that say that it's a play that explains the hardship of navigating through patriarchy. So if the play is a comedy, it's a comedy to understand how it is impossible to be a woman during those times. But you have to go through that entire cringe to see. And it is, 
in a very provoking manner, it can be this type of play that says everything is against women of that time and here we're just going to show it. But that does not make the play an enjoyable thing. There are people who argue on ultra-violent ultra or ultra-horrifying films by saying that it allows us to, con to construct an identity of interaction through society. Like seeing one of the examples that comes to mind is American Psycho. Reading American Psycho as a cautionary tale. We can do this with Taming of a Shrew, but ugh, I think we know how complicated it is to navigate in patriarchy right now. So um, in, did I? Yes, there you go. As terms in laws and effects, Taming of the Shrew is the Pygmalion effect or the Ros Rosenthal effect, so the psychological phenomenon in which high expectations lead to improve performance in a given area. So this is the idea of if you take someone that has no aptitude, like this version of the Pygmalion effect is, um, comes from uh, business management. If you take someone who, has, who everyone has lo a low expectancy towards and you put them in a high render position, they will rise higher than what would have been thought of them. But the Pygmalion effect is also, uh, was also written in, very, uh, in a lot of manners. It was written by, um, ah, I'm blanking on that name, but the um, Audrey Hepburn, Pretty Woman. Ah, is it Breakfast at Tiffany's? Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> Breakfast at Tiffany's is a, a retelling of a, the Pygmalion effect. It's by saying we can take this, uh, there's also She's All That, which is that. You know, you take She's All That, which is a 90s comedy. You have like this dorky girl and eventually you just slap some makeup on her and she's fine, she's great. This is the Pygmalion effect. Is uh, Breakfast at Tiffany and who wrote Pygmalion? Can't remember. Yes, sorry. Mm -hmm. or as a Groomer. mentor and a young woman who is seen as the protege uh, that can be protege that's going to be groomed in non-ethical ways absolutely yep exactly that's the Pygmalion effect is the basis of all grooming may come from Richard Gere or Drake like it's that it's that thing sorry yes yeah, sorry yeah yeah it works doesn't work for the second one, and that's why I keep saying Grease 2 is better than Grease 1. <laughs> and people burn like hair oil on my front lawn, saying like, wow, how can you say that? I'm like, Grease 2 is great. Grease 2 is amazing. Yes, sorry. Um, I said about the Pygmalion effect, but uh, kind of in the reverse. Like if you, um, look, it was in a context of like learning about like taking care of children. And oh, yeah. if you uh, like tell your fellow teachers or your fellow um, educators or whatever, like, Mm -hmm. Like it's going to be really hard working with him. They're going to see him as if he's the expectancies he's will be really yeah. hard to work with as a result. Yeah, well, that's more in there, the high expectations. It's more in the business administration aspect of it, is that if you're creating these expectancies towards someone, well, you can either help like uh, pull them upwards or pull them downwards. So if exactly, if you have problems with a, with a child and you, you bring that 
as common knowledge that it's a problematic child, you'll be pulling him down. But you can do the contrary by saying, oh, no, no, that kid's great. And then you'll curve, the, like the curve will go upwards where you're going to um, offering high expectations and there's, there's going to be improved performance. But this, like there are two, there's the, the um, theatrical, literary, Pygmalion effect, which is much, much more akin to grooming and much more akin to Merchant of Venice, uh, sorry, Taming of the Shrew. And there is the business administration that can be applied to schools. You're right. I'm losing sense of time and I can't feel my fingertips. Okay. So, yes, uh, I can't defend it, but I was trying to think a little bit outside the box and thinking like 17th century. One of the things that came to mind is that, oh yeah, Bloom said, Bloom's adds something super interesting that I'm, it's not a defense once again, but he says, no matter how hard we look, we will not find Shakespeare's opinion in these plays. We will find instead his various opinions on other people's opinions. So he is not necessarily, like even though we know nothing of him biographically, we cannot say that Shakespeare here is sexist. We can only say that Shakespeare painted a portrait of a sexist society. And there is no difficulty in believing that there's a sexist society in uh, Great Britain during that time. Because sometimes our understanding of progress can be flattened. And I wanted to find something that would show how long, how, how much we've evolved since that time. And one of the things that I found is the um, theory of the humors, which was very prevalent during those, uh, during those years. I don't know if you've heard of the humors. Does anyone? Yeah, well, if, you're, if you know France during the revolution that much, you must know the humors. Yes, exactly. Well, it, yes, it is. Bloodletting is one of the consequences of, of humors. Yeah, exactly. Well, the humors is taken completely as like physical form almost. It's like the Yeah, is the thing, this is the diagram that we use to, uh, to understand the humors, is that there are four humans, this is, this is physiology, this is uh, medical science during Shakespeare's time. There are four biles in the human body. So there is the red bile, which is blood. There is, sorry, I wrote them here. There's the yellow bile, the black bile, and phlegm. So those are the four phlegmat, sengin, uh, uh, melak. Oh, yeah, okay, no, these are the humors, sorry. The every human humor or every human disposition, all your emotions are relative to a balance in those humors. So if you have more blood in you, if you have more red bile, then you are friendly, you joke, you laugh about your body, you uh, have like, since you have an excess of red bile blood, you are rosy tinted, and you have pretty skin. People who have more yellow bile are bitter, they are short-tempered, they are daring, they appear greenish, they're just like a little, they have like a green hue to their skin, or a yellow hue to their skin. That's because they have too much yellow bile. Then people that are composed of black bile, they are lazy, fearful, and sickly. They have black hair and black eyes. That's because of something that's in your body. You have too much black bile, so it's feeding. Those who have, uh, but it's not, it's not really skin, like skin, it is because you can have green skin. And phlegm is you have low spirit, 
you're forgetful, and you have white hair. Everything in the human understanding of psychology and emotions is a balance in between those. So as you were saying, bloodletting is you have too much blood. You need to get out some blood because you, you're too happy. Let's <laughs> let some out to make sure that you're balancing the moods. You're balancing. So on one side, the sanguine more blood is like something that is very forceful towards life. You will have choleric, you will have melancholic, and you will have phlegmatic. These are where these terms come from, is because if you are phlegmatic, you have too much phlegm in you. If you are too sanguine, we, we still use the term sanguine personality in personality sanguine. Well, that's because you have too much blood. If you're melancholic, is because you have too much, uh, uh, yeah, yellow, probably, yeah. Like this science doesn't work. Sorry, yeah. Why are they present on the sides? Yeah. Because they were, they, during those times, there was a very, especially uh, physicians were uh, medical doctors and occultists simultaneously. So they used zodiac signs to explain? Yeah, huh. the dispositions. Maybe, like, especially like um, royalty would have their own, like I, I know I dropped the name John D, but John D was the personal physician and a cultist for Queen Victoria. So he would do uh, star readings, he would do star charts, he would do, yeah. and wow. all that was, it was a, a, it was removed from what we understand right now of horoscope, but it was very much in uh, like taking into, into consideration seasons. In Shakespearean times, there was only three seasons, which is how things are weird. Like the understanding of the world was very much veered towards a, a, a unity. So understanding the body was understanding the cosmos. So all those disciplines would go in pair. So you could assign zodiac signs to a type of personality as we are still kind of doing, but they're saying there's also physical manifestation of this. It's not just the position of your star chart during certain events or Mercury rising or stuff of the sort is literally now you have too much yellow bile and physicians would be using this. So this is how far we are from Shakespearean times. So blatant sexism is to be expected. Yes? Uh, I had a question about the last, uh, last class. Uh, were uh, Shakespeare and Isaac Newton contemporaries? No. Because they, they have a similar uh, upbringing because uh, you, you told how Shakespeare had to be removed from London I didn't know that. He moved uh, away to the countryside and he came up with uh, non Euclidean geometry and uh, calculus uh, out of boredom. <laughs> That's great. That's a good <laughs> pandemic project. And, you know, from place to place, they, they, they come in waves. Yeah, yeah, probably. Probably. I can't, I, I couldn't historically place them. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I, I just, I didn't want to, like, history is not my thing. So I was like, do, 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 do. but I couldn't, I couldn't say that Shakespeare had no knowledge of him. Now, if they're a hundred years apart, well, it makes sense that he has no knowledge of him. Yeah, uh, not one or the. Or is this just a similarity between the stories? Yeah, 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I firmly believe that someone will come up of this pandemic with something brilliant. Someone, not everyone, someone, no pressure, they're allowed to do. Okay, so this is really, I wanted to show how, really express the dis how far we were. And the flames, the, the theory of the humor stayed in humanity until like mid 19th century. So we're not that advanced. Like we're, we're not advanced at all, basically. Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. What else did I have? Mm. Oh yeah, and there, there was, there's also the thing that uh, during Shakespearean times, people thought that the uh, sun turned around the, the earth also. Like we're, we're during those times also. We're very, very far away. Uh, do I, I won't do this. Like I had a thing, but I'm not gonna do that thing. Merchant of Venice. Uh, should I, should I break now and do like a really hardcore better? Yeah, let me go, everyone leave. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> Uh, I need to, uh, oh, uh, 25, come back at uh, uh, 13, 40, yeah, come back at Does everything up? Uh, everything works up until this point. No questions. I'm not weird. I am weird, but I like not too weird, not overt. Cool. Everything's fine. Uh, yeah, I found this is really weird. I bought in 2005 a 365-day calendar of Shakespeare's insults. I, I had no idea why I bought this. I have no idea. But then I was preparing the class. Like, wait, wait. 17 years ago. I bought a weird-ass calendar at Kohl's, which is the chapter, uh, Indigo right now, it used to be a, a, a Kohl's when I was a kid. That's where I grew up. And there's like every single day, there's a different insult. What's the one for today? What is today? Today is February 8th. February 8th, let's go. Oh, great, it's a Henry play. Why thou clay brain guts, thou naughty pated fool, thou horson obscene greasy tallow catch. Henry IV, Prince Hal referring to Falstaff's exaggeration of his heroism when a disguised Prince Hal robbed him. This kind of could work as like my horoscope. This is nice. Okay, so I, I, <laughs> there's a reason why I have this, which is great. I know why this is in weapon. I don't need it anymore. Okay, um, we can do, uh, everything's fine. Yeah, da -da -da -da. did I have a recap? Uh, Probably not. Okay. So let's start off with Merchant of Venice. Uh, what? I feel like I had something I had to say, but I can't remember what it was. I don't know. Okay. Merchant of Venice as Chibis. I was super happy to find this. Uh, like, I, li I, I tried to... This is like a detail of only my importance. Uh, like, it's only important to me, I mean. Uh, I tried to find a character chart that was different for each play to make sure that you never thought I did these. Like just, okay, let's make them as diverse as possible so that you know that these resources exist online. 
So Merchant of Venice, this is not as cute of claim for people who have heard what we said. Okay, Bastiano, a virtuous spendthrift gentleman of Venice. Where's Bastiano? Up there. Seeks to woo and marry Portia, a rich heiress living in nearby Belmont. But he needs money in order to compete with his rival suitors. Yes. But he needs money to compete with his rival suitors and approaches his close friend, the merchant Antonio, for a loan. Since all his own wealth is tied up in a large cargo of goods at sea, expected home soon, Antonio agrees to borrow the sum himself from the Jewish moneylender Shylock. Resentful of the prejudice he has previously endured, Shylock nevertheless agrees to lend Antonio the money on the frivolous condition that if Antonio fails to pay it, after three months, he must permit Shylock to cut a pound of flesh from his body. Antonio signs a bond to that effect. This is why it's complicated to say that it's a comedy. <laughs> Antonio signs a bond to that effect because you know, since it's Shakespeare, we're going to end up asking for that. Um, the deal is settled. The terms of Portia's marriage have been determined by her late father's will, who's dead now. Each of her suitors must choose between three symbolic caskets made of gold, silver, and lead. So Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade comes from here. On pain of remaining single ever afterwards if they make the wrong choice. So if you make the wrong choice, you stay celibate. And this has deterred a series of worthless chancers as Portia's maidservant Neisa reminds her. To their relief, when the Prince of Morocco and later the Prince of Aragon take the test, they both fail, each rejecting the, late, the laden casket in favor of, respectively, the glowier gold, gold and silver ones. So obviously, the treasure was in the lead casket and the gold and silver was just to impress. Meanwhile, Shylock's clownish servant, Launcelot Gobo, has deserted his master to work instead for Bassiano. And Shylock's daughter, Jessica, assisted by Bassiano and Graciano before their departure for Belmont, successfully elopes with their friend Lorenzo during the Venice Carnival, along with a stolen casket of her father's golden jewels. Shylock rails against his misfortune, but then news comes that all, Antonio, all Antonio's ships have been lost at sea. Shylock vows to collect his pound of flesh in revenge. News of Antonio's imprisonment reaches Belmont in the jubilant aftermath of Bassiano's successful choice, much to the relief of Portia, and to Nerissa, who has fallen in love with Graciano. The couples are betrothed, and both men sworn to wear their fiancé's rings forever. Bassiano and Graziano hurry back to Venice, closely followed by Portia and Nerissa. Entrusting her home to the newly arrived Lorenzo and Jessica, Portia disguised herself as a male lawyer from Padua and appears for the defense at, Ante at Antonio's trial. But what can Portia possibly say against the term of Shylock's legally binded pound of flesh? And what can Bassiano say when the triumphant lawyer asks nothing for payment except his engagement ring? So the separation in the end is either you give me your wedding or your, the pound of flesh. Uh, in this description, we do not say the ending. In the ending, uh, Portia defends, um, sorry, not Antonio, Bassiano in a manner that um, defeats Shylock, and Shylock must then convert to Christianity, is therefore excluded from uh, the Jewish circles of that city, of the city of Venice. Historically, there's a lot of things to frame here. I framed uh, 
already remembered the pl what play we were. Yeah, I framed the taming of the shrew in a matter of understanding science and equality, but there's also politics that you need to understand for things, for plays such as Merchant of Venice. Venice was a merchant, like we know of the city, but because it has, it had and has so many canals within it, it was a merchant city. So during that time, Venice was pretty much the only city in which Shakespeare could have put up that play because the exchange of goods and money was not done in any territory. Venice was very much reserved to this. And uh, yes, and, and because of that, Venice during those times was very hard on racial tensions. Socially, how can I say this? Yeah. The thing is that during those times, even though there was like, there wasn't a very Jewish presence in Great Britain during that time, because around uh, 1290, a lot of the Jews were exiled out of Great Britain. But during those times, the exchange of money, as in uh, money lending, was only allowed by Jews. So Christians would be allowed to have propriety, would be allowed to, to expand that propriety for more, but only uh, Jews would be allowed to uh, do the exchange of money for the exchange of money. So that keeps them in a social role that is very much uh, intertwined with the description that has been done of Shylock in this play. So as I've said with Taming of the Shroom, Merchant of Venice is a very anti-Semitic play. It's a play that has a lot of accusations towards the Jewish people. And the idea of having such a distasteful character being Jewish has brought a lot of controversy around the play and a lot of discussion. We have discussed the idea of Sherlock, uh, Sherlock Shylock, sorry, in many manners. Obviously, the discourse has defended the Merchant of Venice a lot more than how of uh, defending Taming of the Shrew that in my regards is very much non-defendable. But in the play, since historically we know that Christians could not deliver the type of operation that Shylock does, the idea of having the character a Jew is not framed in the manner of Sherlock, uh, Sherlock, Shakespeare wanting, sorry, I am starting to prepare the class on Sherlock in, in two weeks, so it's, it's fresh in my mind. What I'm trying to say is that Shakespeare had no choice but to make Shylock Jewish because it wouldn't have worked historically at that time with his role in the play. That does not mean that the representation is not horrible or evil, even though some people like have compared, and once again, comparing text is not the best way of making one better than the other, but there is also another very important play of that time called The Jew of Malta, and the Jew of Malta is a lot more anti-Semitic. So people, like most people who try to defend Merchant of Venice say, well, at least it's not Marlowe's Jew of Malta because that one was really hard. The thing is, and the, although I have to teach the, the, the I'll, although I have to teach the discussion about this play, although I, I do believe that there are anti-Semitic elements in the play, underlined by people that I've studied to put on this class. 
I have a quote here by Harold Bloom himself who says, I end by repeating that, I end, I, sorry, I end by repeating that it would have been better for the last four centuries of Jewish people had Shakespeare never written this play. So by saying such a powerful statement, coming from someone who has spent his entire life studying Shakespeare, he understands the flaw, the huge flaw in the play. I, it would have stopped there. This, this course on Merchant of Venice would have stopped right here if two days ago I hadn't fallen upon, um, sorry, what's his name? James Shapiro's Shakespeare and the Jews, where he says, and I want you to think about this because I want your opinion about this. I have tried to show that much of the play's vitality can be attributed to the ways in which it scrapes against the bedrock of beliefs about racial, national, sexual, and religious differences of others. I can think of no other literary work that does so as unrelentingly and as honestly to advert our gaze from what the play reveals about the relationship between cultural myths and people's identities will not make irrational and exclusionary behaviors, I imagine, disappear. Indeed, these darker impulses must remain so elusive, so hard to identify in the normal course of things, that only in instances like productions of this play do we get to glimpse these cultural fault lines. This is why censoring the play is always more dangerous than staging it. How do you feel about this? Exactly, you, you watch the version. If I prick, if, if, in his defense, sorry, I'm just gonna take this one. In, in the court defense, Shylock explains, and there's a huge soliloquy that's very uh, famous right now, if we prick us, do we not bleed? So he pleads to the understanding of, this is a, this is a, a commercial contract, and it should not change, like my religious beliefs should not change how you are respecting this contract, because down the line, we are all the same. That's what you're referring to, I imagine. The idea of making him human. So what I'm thinking is, uh, it, it comes back to what you said uh, last class, how Shakespeare would try to bring up some points, but be careful not to uh, wrongfully tickle the, the wrong person. Yeah, uh, very much patrons so. or nobility or something like so. And maybe that's me be, uh, seeing uh, the, the Shakespeare mirror. Yeah. Reading into him what I want to see, but uh, I I think that he tries as often as he can to give a human voice to Shylock and try to break down the walls that separate him from the Christian cast and bring his audience to maybe for the first time feel for yeah. this guy, even mm -hmm. though he's not Christian. But at the same time, we cannot have the Jew get the reward in the end because that would. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury would not like that. Exactly. The king would not like that. So we have to have the Jew, uh, you know, inserted in Punished. the rank at the end. Yeah. So I think that was, it was his way of, you know, skirting with humanizing the guy, but reverting mm -hmm. back down towards, you know. I think that's a, back yeah. that's a really good reading. I, I absolutely agree with that that political pressures during that time would not allow Shakespeare to end the play 
with the Jew triumphant. But, like, I'm, uh, uh, yes, let's, uh, no, I'm going to lose this thought, so I'm just going to do it real quick. The fact that it's in Venice, there are readings, once again, that I, that I uh, studied for this class, where they say that, and this wraps up questions that we had about Merchant of Venice being so tragic, because the end, the, the how we punish Shylock is, is horrifying, but it's still a comedy. So here we're going to add some points. It's, it's based in Venice. In Venice, during that time, there was a very famous mode of theater, which was called La Comedia dell'Arte. So Pantalon, uh, Plume, all those characters, which was very exaggerated. It was a, a, a archetypal type of theater where people would use their swords to poke each other in the ass and then jump and Punch and Judy would be this type of uh, theater that was a um, uh, marionette, sorry. Muppets. Yeah, no, not Muppets. Puppets. Sorry. Uh, puppets that would like kill each other, like itchy and scratchy all the time. There was very overt Italian theater in Venice at that time. Merchant of Venice is considered a comedy, but it's never, or of the people that I've read, it has never been treated as an Italian comedy. It has never been treated as if something that was overt and crazy and striped pants and people going whoop, 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 all the time. Shylock was always played super somber, was always played like someone who had on like first-hand malicious intent by asking the pound of flesh is really something that is menacing. But afterwards, by receiving this type of, of uh, punishment, he goes into his own, um, his own erasure. In Comedia dell'Arte, people will get hit on the head with baseball bats constantly and just bounce back up. So if you're taking one tradition that was very present in that time and you say, maybe if we played Merchant of Venice in, with those Italian codes, it would not be as condemning of the Jewish character. But that's interpretation because up to now, no one that I've read has seen that type of mise en scène. So that's, once again, not something that excuses it, but presents how you can show variations around that text. And I just want to make sure, did I, did I, uh, I, I think I did this, but since I was doing it in my daughter's uh, room, I can't remember. Did I tell you the story about uh, my, my uh, teacher here, Luc Bonenfant, and uh, killing of a text? How you could, if you interpret a text and you allow only one interpretation of that text, you basically kill it. If everyone agrees that the text is one thing, well, you're closing off all other interpretation and the text can't breathe anymore. In my regards, Merchant of Venice is that type of play. It has been seen as something that is widely anti-Semitic and it's always played as if it was anti-Semitic. But there might be a way, might here, because I've never seen it, played differently to able to allow something else there. The shame of the corruption, the shame of him losing is completely, is seen in one regard. And by focusing a lot of Merchant of Venice on Shylock, like the, the you, it's obvious when you watch the, the, the Pacino version, it's the only version that I've seen, he wanted to play that role. It's a super meaty role, it's really intense, he takes the play and he runs with it. But when you read the text, the play is almost, even I feel sometimes more about Portia. And Portia is not a character that is played as, it was, as if it was the, the main attraction in the play. Portia has a lot of presence, uh, has a lot, like there's um, in 
Merchant of Venice, in, I, I probably don't have the historical sense to see this, but it's a very bisexual play. It's a very, there's bisexuality, there's cross-dressing, there's, it's, it's a very um, broad representation of the type of, types of sexuality. We obviously know that um, Bassiano and Antonio have slept together, and we know that Antonio is not happy that Portia is there because he uh, will be losing his lover. Portia has to cross-dress to go in court, so there's also a, a, a male identity affixed to that character. There's something very fluid in Merchant of Venice, but it's not, even though it's very present in the text, it's not played as such. Yes? Oh, no, wait, sorry, there was a, yeah, in the back. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what? What happened with Lady Yeah. It's just. Well, that's it. Yeah. But I think Shapiro is talking about right now. I don't think he's talking about during those lifetimes because those lifetimes, those weren't preoccupations. Like, but him is the idea of, I think he's asking the question of knowing how Merchant of Venice is read now. Do we stop? playing it and how do we balance the right and wrong in stopping that now are we is putting on the play conductive to keeping the jewish stereotype alive like the, the evil jewish stereotype alive and if we remove that is it going to remove that stereotype or is it going to remove our tools in understanding when we are working in harmful stereotypes and when we're not. It's a question I have no answer for, and I don't think anyone has an answer for, but it's one of those questions that keeps the mind alive when you're speaking of art that comes from another time. 
as I said, I really would have cut it off. Like, okay, well, this is, it's a play that is largely written as anti-Semitic. But then this came up and I went, I, I don't know. I'm not someone who has very strong opinions about stuff. So reading this went, wow, this, this is something that I could ponder on until next time I give the class if I, well, no, for the entirety of the time that I will be interested in Shakespeare, I have to keep that question in mind. Thing that I don't really have to do with Taming of the Shrew. I can't admit Taming of the Shrew, saying, oh, no, it's, it's a really, really sexist play and just disregard it. But this one, it kind of keeps something important in its presence. Yes, sorry. More or Mohammedan, yeah. And then the fact that he's accepted by everyone probably means that he's converted. Yes, it's explained in the text that uh, Othello has converted to Christianity. Exactly. Yeah. And then after it's um, towards the end, he says that he's going to church. So then I thought, I read, but what does it mean being church? And then church is a reference to the enemy being done, being indifferent. So then it's basically himself. He's reverted back to, yeah, 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 and that's, it's pretty much the opposite here, mm -hmm. where we, Shylock has been defeated and humiliated, and after that, they're reintegrating him into Christianity, where he potentially can exert some sort of revenge, maybe, or like, he's not, it's not going to clean him out of aggression or bitterness or whatever, that's not, Conversion will not help them out here. It will only exacerbate that type of behavior that is also allowed and encouraged by Antonio. Because Shylock, like the, the, how we treat Shylock is in regard of a, a, an understanding that he had with Antonio. And Antonio also had to say, yeah, that's fine. If I can't pay you, you can cut up my boy. So why are we more condemning one or the other? It's still, you know, having that as a raised question, if, if, that, if, there were, if there was no art that would allow us to raise that question, would we be better humans? I think that's immensely complex. So yeah, I just wanted some space with this. Uh, and the, the yeah, one of the, uh, Repeating blooms. I think there's something also very uh, interesting in the fact that one of the greatest Shakespeare scholars says maybe this place shouldn't exist. What do I have? No. Let's go. Unless there are more questions. Much ado. All right. Don Pedro and his men, Don Pedro, returns after a war to stay at Leonato's house, 
Leonardo not present? Which one is Leonardo again? Oh, he's not there. Yeah, sorry. Just wanted to make sure. Benedict continues a prickly relationship with Leonato's niece, Beatrice. Both solemnly declare that they will never marry. Claudio falls in love with Hero, Leonato, not pictured, daughter. Don Pedro agrees to woo Hero for Claudio at a reception that evening. Don John, Pedro's bastard brother, this, like, this is really like the best example of when I say they were putting on ensemble pieces. They were throwing a lot of actors at a Shakespeare play and going like, good luck. And it was even directed by him. So he would direct and play one of the most important roles. And it's just, this, like, uh, um, I, I obviously, like you recognize Ken Reeves, you recognize uh, Denzel Washington. No, it's, it's Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Branagh who directed Belfast, nominated for an Oscar Best Film. Kenneth Branagh directed a lot of Shakespearean adaptations. He did a, a Hamlet also. This is, this is Kate Beckinsale. Yeah. That took me a long time to notice. I think she's 15 at the time. She played in the Werewolf and Vampire Underworld films. And uh, is this a kid from E.T.? No, he's from Yeah, he plays, yeah, he plays, he plays Moriarty in, no, not Moriarty. He plays uh, Watson. Yeah. If House is a, is a Sherlockian adaptation, he is, he is a, ah, <laughs> Sherlock, Shylock, Shylock, okay. Uh, he is Watson. There you go. In House. Sorry. Okay. There were questions. No? No. I've completely lost it. Maybe tired. Okay. So, at the party. Claudio is told by Don John that Pedro is wooing for himself, but Claudio soon learns that this is not so, that Hero is his. Further antagonism between Beatrice and Benedict leads Pedro and the others to trick them into falling in love with each other. Trick them. Leonato, Claudio, and Don Pedro let Benedict overhear them speak of how much Beatrice loves him. Later, Hero and Maria let Beatrice overhear their talk about how much Benedict loves her. Both Benedict and Beatrice find they have feelings for each other and appear love-struck to their friends. Meanwhile, Don John arranges for Baracchio to woo Hero's maid, Margaret, at Hero's window. Woo have, right here is sexual intercourse. He informed, if you, if you haven't, it, it doesn't have the same impact if you don't understand that basically what they want is Baracchio to have sex with uh, Margaret while he's at Hero's window so that people will think that that's Hero. They see Brocario calling Margaret Hero and are taken in. The watch led by Dogberry and Vergis prepare to carry out their evening duties. This one, Dogberry is played by Michael Keaton. He is absolutely insane. Enjoy it. Bracrio is overheard telling Conrad about the plot and they are arrested. Dogberry and Virgis begin an interrogation, but the time of the wedding arrives before they can reach any conclusions. There, Claudio and Pedro reveal the truth about Hero, the truth. She faints and they leave. Don John flees the estate. Leonato harangues Hero while she protests her innocence. So Leonato's like, how dare you sleep with someone on your window while we were supposed to, supposed to be great. The priest supports her and suggests they pretend she has died until the truth is discovered. So keep it calm. 
will tell her that you killed herself, and this will place things back up together. <laughs> During that time, Beatrice and Benetric vow to kill Claudio for shaming Hero. Leonato and Antonio offer to fight with Claudio, then learn the truth from the watch, uh, Darberry and Verges. Darberry bring, brings uh, Barocchio and Conrad to confess before Claudio and Pedro. Sorry, she wasn't having sex with that guy. And Claudio begs forgiveness. Leonato demands that Claudio mourns Hero and in recompense marries his brother's daughter, who happens to look exactly like Hero. So Leonato comes up and they're like, oh, uh, isn't she supposed to be dead? Uh, no, she's, yeah, she's dead, but we got like her exact copy of a cousin. So would you <laughs> marry the exact copy of the cousin? Claudio agrees. Sorry, I said Leonato, but that's Claudio. Claudio agrees and at the ceremony, he encounters the real hero and she is unveiled. Beatrice and Benedict stop denying each other and agree to be married. They're all about to dance and they receive news of Don John's capture, which is great because the end, like the play is the two weddings, everyone's enjoying each other. And then it's just someone comes up and Don John died. <laughs> just, we're just closing that one up. Enjoy your party. <laughs> and it really ends that way. It's like he, he needs, there needs to be balance. There needs to be revenge. Don John dies off screen. That's most of it. Uh, the thing with Much Ado About Nothing is that it's a really strange composite of plenty of elements present in other Shakespearean plays. So the fact that there's a, a, a wronged lover that decides to kill themselves is very much from Romeo and Juliet. The presence of it's the, 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 the cheat, like the, the lying to be able to uh, provoke jealousy comes from Othello. These elements seem to have been composited in late in Shakespeare's career. He wrote this pretty late. So it's basically as if he was taking best of, but like elements and saying, wait, if I take this and this and this, can I turn Romeo and Juliet? Can I turn Othello? Can I turn, can I turn these into comedies? So there's like a really strange exercise here that uh, feels as if he was himself putting himself up to the task. Yes. And, uh, well, it, yes, it, it could, it could, but it's not, it's not one of his masterpieces. The title is telling. The title is very much telling, which is the second part of what I wanted to talk about. A lot of people who do Shakespeare comedies, uh, I had, I like, can only concentrate on this one. Uh, when I was speaking of close readings, how by reading the text over and over, eventually you'll get to a point where you start understanding things that live in between the lines. The whole gaseous thing that I was speaking about. There are codes in, during those times and that are very much present in Shakespearean tragedies or tragedies or comedies or plays, whatever. The one that is most known of is the, um, the dying in someone's arms. When someone says, oh I, would die, oh, I would die somewhere on someone else's body part, dying was very well understood under the French term, la petite mort. So dying is not really dying. Dying is really orgasming. <laughs> and there are things such as uh, Beatrice that comes and speaks to Benedict. She says, will you go hear this news, Signor? And Benedict answers, I will live in thy heart, die in thy lap, and be buried in thy eyes, and moreover, I will go to thee with thy uncles. 
these types of, yes, dying. And if you ever read Romeo and Juliet, there's a lot of dying in each other's arms. They are respectively 14, they are 16 and 14 in that plane. So the, the literal interpretation, well, which was, you know, it's, let's not talk about the age, but dying is always pluri-interpretable. So the, the, the spent, dying, this is all like a, a lexical field that you can explore when you're reading Shakespeare. The other one that I did not know of, and I don't know if you've known about this or if that's why you're referring to the, the play, Much Ado About Nothing, when you read it as a play, you're like a lot of kerfuffle for very little, beaucoup de mouche pour peu de caca, basically. That's how you can see it. I did not know when I went, oh, I'll teach a class on Shakespeare. I did not know that during those times, everyone knows about like Bollywood films, how, uh, you know, in Bollywood films, you can't kiss one, in, one, uh, one another. So you have to, there's always like an apple. So the, the girl will come up to the guy, kiss an apple, give the apple to the guy. The guy takes the apple, kisses the apple. And by transference, it's like they're kissing. <laughs> those codes are very well present. Obviously, you cannot talk about genitalia in Shakespearean times. I did not know that the male genital, yeah, there you go, was something. When they were trying to present something, they were most of the time trying to present their genitalia. The male genitals is something, and the female genital is nothing. So when you're speaking of nothing, and the play is called Much Ado About Nothing. Which is, it's the fact that all of this is around two guys who really just want to get on. It's much ado about the female genitalia. I did not know this. I went, oh, that's, that's an interesting. Yeah. So if you ever end up reading plays or being interested in, in them, Look at those types of codes. Look at how the language, I've got, uh, we're going to be like, if this is a type of content that you're just curious about, we're going to be doing a lot of this next week because the uh, women writer of the 19th century codified their language like immensely. So there's a lot of coding in there. We'll be back. So here's much of a, ah, yes. Ah, this was like one of my, if I ever have time, I'll speak of Kate Benton, which is a, uh, she, used to draw strips, I think she stopped, called Hark of Vagrant, where uh, she would do like these super modern twists on classic jokes. Well, not, no, M modern jokes on classic texts, where she would have like characters from Dracula, once they're bitten by Dracula, they would start singing Beyonce songs because everyone that is bitten by Dracula kind of gets unburdened by sexual repression. So they all end up wearing heels and it's super funny. Kate Benton's Hark of Vagrant, if you can read this, but she has like this series about sexual innuendos in Shakespeare. <laughs> I really enjoy the puns. Which is <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's, there's more to the comedy than what we can expect. Maybe people, like maybe it is his Magnus Opus because it's so many dick jokes. <laughs> Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, how am I? Yeah, time is crazy short. Okay. Let's go. This play it makes no sense. <laughs> so <laughs> this is understanding of it. Yeah, 
It's, it's three binaries, that's all you need to know. Theseus, Duke of Athens, and Hippolyta, Queen of the Amazon, Wonder Woman's mother, are arranging, this is true, it's really Wonder Woman's mother, are arranging the celebrations for their forthcoming wedding on Midsummer's Eve. Aegis spoils the festive mood by complaining to Theseus that his daughter Hermia has refused to marry Demetrius. Hermia? Hermia. Hermia. Not Hermia, yeah. Theseus, his daughter Hermia has refused to marry Demetrius, the husband he has chosen for her, and invokes the Athenian law. She must obey her father or be condemned to death or to a life as a nun. Hermia and her lover Lysander decide to elope and confide their, pli- their plans to Helena, Hermia's best friend, who is herself in love with Demetrius. So here you have like a love tr- square. Rectangle. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a triangle. It's, you have, I, I really like the fact that we have the pointies here. Uh, Hoping to win Demetrius' favor, Helena now reveals her elopement to him. Total confusion, part two, follows as all four of them escape to the enchanted forest. Demetrius pursuing Hermia, Helena pursuing Demetrius, and Hermia pursuing Lysander, for whom she has become separated. Oberon, third pairing, king of the fairies, and his queen Titania are also in the forest waiting to attend Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding. After a a quarrel over Titania's refusal to surrender her Indian page boy to him, Oberon seeks to punish her disobedience. He instructs the goblin Puck to drop the juice of magical flower on the eyes of the sleeping Titania, which will make her fall in love with the first creature she sees on awakening. It gets weirder. (laughs) Puck is also ordered to do the same to Demetrius, who Oberon has seen cruelly rejecting Helena, but the goblin mistakenly enchants Lysander instead, who wakes up and immediately falls in love with Helena. The confusion deepens as the lovers quarrel and lose one another in the nighttime maze of the forest. There's a lot of Puck walking around and gyrating his, sh- his, his hips during this. <laughs> Meanwhile, it, it's, it's, uh, Puck has always played like overt sexual. Meanwhile, a group of Athenian workers have entered the forest to rehearse the inept play they are to perform at Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding. I really wish we could have watched the play. I don't think we'll have time. Puck interrupts the rehearsal, however, however, and transforms the weaver Nick Bottom's head into a donkey. So one of the actors of the play ends up with a donkey's head. Uh, Titania awakens to see the donkey head, lavishes her love on him, blissfully unaware, though he remains of his transformation. He doesn't know he's a donkey, but he's being sexed up by the queen of the fairies. Out of this cosmic chaos, order is gradually restored. Oberon gets his Indian pageboy and releases Titania, Bottom, and the four Athenian lovers from their magical bondage. Demetrius, at last, proclaims his true love for Helena, leaving Hermia free to marry Lysander. Since Theseus now overrules Aegis and commands the two reunited couples to join the ceremony of his own wedding to Hippolyta. The, tree, the three happy couples enjoy the spectacle of the workers' ridiculously bad play before retiring for the night. I wanted to show the play because once again, it's a play in a play. There are a lot of plays in a plays in a plays in Shakespeare, but this one is even funnier because it's really horrible. The play, expl- and this is me teaching the class, explaining the play is longer than the play itself. 
So the metal sign comes up, explains, this character does this, and he has to do this, and then he's going to cut, and then they start the play, which in my regards kind of justifies what I was saying earlier on of if you ever go see Shakespeare theater, read a synopsis, it's fine. You, you won't get spoilers. It's good for you to have a good solid foundation on which you'll be able to appreciate or not appreciate the performances. That's what happens in the play. Uh, do I show it? It's, it's kind of long. Okay. The, I've already spoken about this, but now that you know, the, the entire play is a dream within a dream. The metaphor is also filed in the fact that it is a play within a play. We are watching a play. People that watch a play are accompanying other people within a dream. Things don't really have to make sense, and they don't. But there's a lot of sex in here, which makes us think that Midsummer Night's Dream is also a very uh, sex dream thing, where the midsummer is also the peak of uh, coupling, marriages, and people just feeling... I, yeah, am, am I allowed to say that word? <laughs> Feels, yeah, it's, it's the, the snake of June, the, the expression that we use when temperature is at its highest and everyone really wants to get naked with each other. With each other. Midsummer Night's Dream is about that. It's basically, it can be seen as a play about someone going to sleep and having very lurid and fantastical sex dreams. It works. This is not what we would expect when we're speaking of the great William Shakespeare, but it's very much present. It's the, it's the dirty nasty. But there's also, within the play, something very smart. Well, there are many very smart things. But one of the smart things that is presented is that in the play, there are four different worlds interacting with each other. So on the first side, you have Theseus and Hippolyta, who are characters that come from Greek tragedy. So they're ancient myths, they're legends. Theseus is the ship of Theseus, Hippolyta is queen of the Amazons. So you have a, a, a legendary cast on top. Then you have Hermia, Helena, Lysander, and Demetrius that are the, the mortals of the play. People that are, can be uh, influenced by the gods to fall in love, to fight in one, uh, within one, with one and another. That entire square, do I? Yes, okay. The entire square works in like this, the, 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 it doesn't really have a name, or the, the romantic law that says that we only, or we pursue things that evade us. So in romantic relationships, if you're trying to attract someone's attention, you might try to not give them attention to see if the law of attraction will work in the other way. If you're too assistant, you will, laws of attraction? Oh yeah, well, no, no, I've, I, I, it, it's actually worked. It's biography, uh, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's, it doesn't work all the time, but sometimes you can just like, and that's what they do during the entire plays. This shifts in the relationships by ignoring. Obviously, it's through magic, but there's interest that is renowned because um, Hermia stops uh, pursuing everyone. Uh, no, Hermia, sorry, Helena stops pursuing Demetrius. Eventually, Demetrius goes, wait, she stopped pursuing me. She was insisting a little too much. It works. Well, uh, so you have like the, the human valors there. Under that, you have the fairies. So Titania, Oberon, Puck, and uh, the characters that accompany Bottom, who all have like pretty strange names. And the 
it's, it's the acting troop, the, mecha the mechanicals, that is really interesting because although we cannot prove this, they are archetypes that come from Shakespearean theater of the time. So this would be like the first time and the only time that Shakespeare actually represents people of his practice of, of, of the theater of the time. Even though he does not represent them very well, they're not glorious characters, they do have immense heart. He very much believes in them, especially Bottom. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream and Much Ado About Nothing explains Weo's law that states that communication usually fails except by accident. So that if we try to communicate with people, it is an, we are lucky if the other person understands what we're trying to say. Most of the time people fail. The accident is the fact that communication is established. Uh, yes, uh, obviously all this is done under the uh, tarot card of the moon. The moon is the card that we use to represent the unconscious. So during the, um, the auspicions of the moon, what is conscious becomes unconscious and what is conscious becomes, what is unconscious becomes conscious. So it's taking the unconscious and pushing it to the forefront, which is absolutely what Midsummer Night's Dream does. It's taking all unconscious and making it center stage. Okay, questions? Tempest. It's a weird play. But it's not weirder than Midsummer. Midsummer is really weird. Okay, character map. This is the story of Prospero, the rightful Duke of Milan, who has been deposited. No, oh, sorry. Am I recording? Am I? Rec yes, I am recording. Whew. That would have been weird. Uh, this is the story of Prospero, the rightful Duke of Milan. Sorry. I won't be able to get through that text if I don't. Um, Uh, okay, once again, this is the story of Prospero, the rightful Duke of Milan, who has been deposed by his treacherous brother Antonio. He conspired with Alonso, the king of Naples, to cast Prospero and his infant daughter Miranda adrift at sea. Both are presumed dead. In fact, however, Alonso's virtuous advisor, Gonzalo, has stocked their boat with supplies, enabling them to survive until washed ashore on a distant unknown island where they have now been marooned for 12 years. A powerful magician and now lord of the island, Prospero is served by two native inhabitants, the spirit Ariel and the beast Caliban. Prospero has freed Ariel from the curse of endless imprisonment imposed by the witch Sycorax, now dead. Caliban is Sycorax's own grudging and malignant son. With Ariel's help, Prospero now seizes the chance for revenge conjuring up a great storm to wreck a ship, carrying his enemies onto the shores of the island. On the ship are Alonso, his son Ferdinand, and his brother Sebastian. Along the others, among the others aboard are the kindly Gonzalo, Prospero's own brother Antonio, as well as other noblemen and servants. All of them are traveling back to Naples from a wedding in Africa of Alonso's daughter uh, Claribel. She's not in the play. Ariel puts the crew to sleep, leaving the castaways safely stranded, but at the mercy of Prospero's plans, which unfold over the next few hours. The villainous Antonio now seeks to, uh, to usurp the throne of Naples by persuading Sebastian to murder his brother, King Alonso, 
now distraught at what he believes to be the drowning of his son Ferdinand. Elsewhere, Alonso's servant, the drunken butler Stefano, and a foolish Trinculo encounter Caliban, who similarly persuades them to assassinate Prospero and take command of the island. Both these conspiracies, however, are closely monitored by Prospero, and each of them frustrated by Ariel's enchantment, enchantments, which lead them astray. Meanwhile, Ferdinand has been captured alive and well by Prospero, who pretends to enslave him, through, though his true aim is to test Ferdinand's character in the hope of supplying a worthy partner for his precocious daughter Miranda. Prospero's plan works. The couple immediately fall in love. But how severely should he, be, should he now punish those who have denied him his dukedom? In the end, love and forgiveness triumph over any wish of revenge, and all are reconciled as if awoken from a bad dream. Prospero will return to Milan once more as its duke, renounce magic since he breaks his staff and throws away his book, and at last sets Ariel free in payment for his services. The island is Caliban's once more. So there are, in, the t in Tempest, there are three stories. Yeah, there are three stories working simultaneously. On one side, you have Prospero with uh, Miranda and Ferdinand. On the other side, you have Caliban with Stefano and Trinculo. And on the other side, you have Antonio, Sebastian. Oh, yeah, sorry. This is, a, this is not the same version because it's Gonzalo, but play by woman, it becomes Gonzalo and Alonso. During the entire play, Stefano Trinculo and Caliban are basically flat out drunk. That's what happens. They're just drinking the entire time, <laughs> trying to survive on a deserted island. Right. On this side, there are, there's something that's very close to the tragedies. So machinations trying to orchestrate a way to assassinate and take power. And on this side, you have a romantic story where Miranda and Ferdinand fall in love, but they are constantly tested by Prospero. This is Shakespeare's last play alone. He wrote other plays afterwards. He wrote three other plays accompanied. Since it is his last play, a lot of interpretation has been put on the fact that he was trying to end in that manner. He, took, he retired afterwards, but it's interpreted in that manner because it's the final play, but we don't really... The reading is flawed. It's not it reads really well as a farewell, especially since we know that Prospero ends by saying, I'm, I'm done with this, breaks his staff, throws his book and leaves. So that's a very romantic way of saying that Prospero is Shakespeare's own exit from stage. This is doubled up to the fact that Prospero is some sort, there's something really obvious when you start the play is that Prospero is on, uh, uh, the side of the island, he sees the boats away and goes, a storm would be great right now. And then the storm comes up. And you realize afterward that it's, he's commanding Ariel. But it's him commanding through magic in the play, but it's also him creating the play. Prospero is the magician within the play as Shakespeare is the writer who is the magi magician of the play. So you can double out that interpretation in it of having this lonely guy who spent a lot of time with a nose in his book, creating people out of nothing and crafting stories and putting up situations. Prospero works through that interpretation. Also, it works very much through the idea of the occult. He is a very functioning occult character, especially if you take in, into consideration the, the power that he has as a writer. A lot of 
occultism has gravitated around the power of words, if it can be in evocation, using a word like abracadabra or I don't know the other ones. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, exactly. There you go. Leviosa or the Excelsior. Excelsior. Yeah, it, it is a magic. I, I'll allow it. It is a, it is a, <laughs> comes from Stan Lee. But it, the, the idea of having an underlying magic to words, the evocation of the, um, uh, it's through words and through language that you are able to assert your will on the world and you can change things through, wor through words. And by manipulating language at a high enough level, you can eventually be able to manipulate reality. Things that have been seen in his plays, Iago manipulates reality through language. But in Prospero, there's something very, he is a wizard. So we're very much equating the power of creating through language and also through the act of theater. There's, there's like a, a meeting there that becomes, as I said, very romantic when you're thinking of Shakespeare taking his final bow. He will create this entire character that is him, and he will be the master and the, the wizard of the entire world. In this regard, uh, Northrop Fry wrote a different parallel in between Prospero and Shakespeare, where he says that Prospero and Shakespeare are, uh, Prospero is a harassed, overworked actor manager, scolding lazy actors, praising the good ones in Connoisseur's language, thinking up a job for the ideal, constantly aware of his limiting time before the show goes on, his nerves tense and alert for breakdown while it's going on, looking forward longingly to peaceful retirement, yet in the meantime having to go out and beg the audience to applause. So the, 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 the wizard as metteur en scène is very present there, but it shows us I think there's an exit. This is me reading it right here. I'm not offering a complete interpretation. Once again, make your own. Take these plays, read them, watch them, and read whatever you want out of them. What I say and everything that I've been saying for the last three, uh, four, five and a half hours is me. I feel this way. These readings work in my regards, but you are completely free to do your own. There's something very much of Prospero saying I free myself of these words that bind, and now the words that I've, that I've bound with are yours. Enjoy them and do what you can with them. If you want to do a anti-Semitic reading of Merchant of Venice, that's your thing. I'm not taking care of this anymore. I'm retiring. He kind of throws down in the end. But history says, history says that we can't, it's, it's a coincidence that this is his final play. He was, not, he was not expecting to die. He might have written something else, but it's just because historically we have this, we end up saying this is the final curtain call. Uh, in, once again, completely biographical. I've been <laughs> in university very, for a very long time. I think, well, first of all, the elements of magic pleased me immensely. I like the idea of having a character who understands the power of words up to the point where he offers the power afterwards. Says, like, this is, this is what you can do with language. He shows, and then he goes, this is your stuff. That is immensely enchanting to me. I love this as an English teacher. But as a scholar, as someone who has spent way too much time at university, the separation 
in between the affections that Prospero has towards Ariel and he has towards Pros uh, Caliban, for me, explain or are absolutely clear once you've spent more than 15 years, 14 years on an island or 14 years in university. When you do research, there are two types of sprites that will come up. If you're researching something, you will find tidbits of information such as Ariel that will help you, that will encourage you, that will allow you to do more, to construct, to go further on with your ideas. That's a great ally to have. It's great to have those resources. When you're researching something, you say, oh, I'm thinking this and that person said that, that's fine, I'm on the, I'm on the right track. But you can't only have Ariel, you also have to have Caliban. Caliban is the information that contradicts you, that says, no, sorry, you're wrong. Oh, you're looking in the wrong direction. Caliban is constantly stopping Prospero in his progression, but he's not stopping him in a definitive manner. He's stopping him and forcing Prospero to find another way. So these two types of information, these two sprites, for me are very complete in the life of a scholar. He spends 14 years with his books, the books that have survived on his, uh, during his exile. And in those books, there is enough information to bring upon both these forces. The force of knowledge that helps and the force, the force of knowledge that hinders. But they both need to be there. You cannot be uniquely fed by information that, is, that corroborates what you think. You can also never be fed information that is constantly saying the opposite of what you think. You need both. This is, there's a balancing act there. And the balancing act is very present in uh, Tempest. It's, a, it's an entire play about knowledge. So it makes sense that it's that weird. It does make sense. Uh, yeah, during those times, like as I was saying, Prospero, like, Prospero as a magician is also a magician in the, uh, in the optics of that time. Science and the physicians and the occultists, like during that time to be a scholar was knowing astronomy, mathematics, geography, navigation, alchemy, occult philosophy, and they were all taken up under the same discipline. These are all things that we consider completely apart now, but being a complete scholar was that. That was what you were researching. You were understanding the world through all those iterations with a core tenet of understanding. That's also what Prospero gets to. Uh, a lot about chaos magic, uh, a lot about John Dee. There's also in, this one I didn't feel as much, but if you really want to investigate it, it works in uh, Julie Tamor's version. Julie Tamor directed uh, Titus Andronicus and The Tempest. In Tempest, Prospero is played by Helen Mirren. She's a Prospera. She's amazing. Uh, Julie Tamor directed a lot of um, uh, Broadway plays. So everything is very lush. The character development, like the costumes and the sets are pretty amazing. Caliban is played by Jimon Ansu and he plays it absolutely amazingly. Which brings me to the final point about um, post-colonial readings that have been done of Tempest, especially around the character of Caliban. There's a uh, book by uh, Aimé César who speaks of the colonizer aspect through Prospero and Caliban, very present in that story, where he says that, uh, actually it's called Une Tempête, and he puts Caliban and Ariel as house servants. So he shows the idea of colonialism, colonialism 
within the uh, within that plane. I haven't read Untampait, but if you're ever interested in this, it's very much there. So yeah, in Tempest, although there is something of the it it has elements of a lot as much ado about nothing, but in more of a, a dramatic and a more serious um, posture. He is returning to his, his best ofs, if you can say, but he's also returning in questioning. There's also very much, like in Much Ado About Nothing, questionings about social stance and stuff are pretty absent, but in Tempest, there are some immense reading that can be done. Is that it? That's it, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. Oh yes, that's kind of it, sorry, I was so close. The microphone, did, did the microphone work the entire time? Not really, huh? I didn't, it worked, okay, sorry, I felt like I was getting more and more like, <laughs> you scare me. <laughs> uh, the final word that I have about these two classes, which will not be as much the case with the other works that we'll be talking about, is how it's important for me, class struggle is kind of important. And these texts, I fear, are very much under lock and key by a certain form of aristocracy and a form of bourgeoisie. Like Shakespeare is some sort of a, a higher class type of work. When you go to Shakespeare, you're expressing bourgeois inclination or ideologies. And as it was added, as it is the problem with close readings, I feel that treating those plays in that manner does not help anyone because they put these texts behind lock and key. They say like, Shakespeare is not for us. Shakespeare is not talking about us. It's not talking about a reality. It's not giving us tools for whatever. It's only for the ruling class, like the ruling class that goes to the theater and doesn't listen to the text. Shakespeare is not that. Shakespeare should be absolutely taken by the, by the people. And that's what he did when he was writing originally. Shakespeare wrote in common colloquial language because he wanted to make sure that everyone could understand him. He wanted to make sure that the people read his plays and understood the tensions, understood the lessons, understood how we can navigate through life with certain tools and certain hints. I, if there's one thing that I could, I really, really wish you could leave in this class when you're leaving is the preconceptions that Shakespeare is not about you. Don't, that's not the case at all. Shakespeare has a lot less to do with the ruling class than it has to do with the working class. It's, these are tools and things that you should have, not them. So stop giving it to them. It, they should not have authority on these texts. People who, read, who write books about Shakespeare should not have authority on the text. It's yours, take it, use it, please. Just get rid of the idea that that's for like higher class people. The ruling class sucks. Fuck it, let's burn them. All right, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, let me kill that really quick by saying, is everyone okay with the, um, for the, for the midterm? I really wanna nip this in the bud super quick. The midterm is a plan for your final. It's a plan on a work of your choice in English literature. you'll be doing a bigger version of what you're doing on Moodle. Okay. So you take those, 
Well, not longer as in what you say in two sentences, now say it in 11, but longer as in more worked on. So that's why, take whatever you want. Um, pass it by me first, since we kind of had a little problem with the knight's tail, just in case. So just <laughs> send me an email, say, I want to work on this. I'll say, hey, okay, everything's fine. But work on what you want to work as, far, as long as it's English literature. The, what is to be handed in before the break is the plan. So I want to say, I'm going to say this. I'll be looking at this and this and this and this. I'll look at that, go, this makes sense. In, I, I hope that I have time to say, that's great, look at this. That's great, think of this. If I can do that, I'd be super happy. Afterwards, for the final, you're going to be writing the entire thing. That's it. I have no idea, like details, it, it's something like five, six pages for the final. But the plan is page and a half. No, the plan, it's a plan. It's bullet points, okay? Sentences, I'm thinking of this, I'm going with this, I read this, this is an idea. And I'll be able to look at that, say, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense, maybe you should start, or maybe you should try looking at this or not. That's it, yes? Uh, do we have any criteria? It's the same but I can offer like a, a bigger one. I can also be absolutely explicit on the fact that I'm a really bad evaluator. I'm really bad at it. It's not the thing that we're, like you are all training to be teachers. I've never been trained to be a teacher. The thing that I lack the most is corrections. I'm really bad at it. I, the only way that I'll get good at it is by doing it. And I'm a young teacher. I've only been teaching for two years. So I'm working on it. If, if you need it, I'll take care of it, but it's not, it's not my best. I, I'm, I'm not dancing on the best foot when I'm doing that. I'm good at saying, oh, this is great, and then, like, I've actually made the evaluations for this class reflect my strengths and weaknesses. Like, I'm no good at this, I'm not gonna do it. But in reading your plan and saying, oh, uh, so-and-so wrote a great article about that, that is my jam, I'm super good at that. So. If you want more instructions, I'll be able to give you more instructions. But for the plan, super simple. Point form, page and a half, tops. I don't have that. The undercurring <laughs> current thing here is I cannot, I'm going to be correcting them. It's 75, uh, 74 works total. So I, I can't meander on all of them. I, I really have to go quick. So please make this easy, make it quick. One, two. Um, e, oof, I can't remember. The, uh, it's on the Moodle. It's the uh, unwritten memoir. Novel. Unri unwritten novel by Virginia Woolf. It's on Bartleby, or it's, it's uh, free of rights, so you can find it anywhere. Questions in the back? For uh, spring break. Well, that Tuesday at 2. You're, like you're not coming into class, but you're sending me an email. Uh, oh, I could put a Moodle box. Other questions? Anything else? Cool.